0: A listener production. I'm Action Alexa, former college American football player and wrestler turned half Ironman competitor. I've recovered from alcoholism and managed to die on the operating table four times. And now I'm a strength coach and motivational speaker.
1: And I'm Jenna Louise, an ex-competitive gymnast and BMX racer, now a multidisciplined high performance athlete and coach.
0: Over the course of our careers within the fitness industry, we've seen firsthand the impact that physical strength and mental toughness can have in changing the course of people's lives.
1: In our podcast, How Fitness Saved My Life, we invite people to share the stories and practical skills of how they built their physical, mental and emotional fitness and how that saves them at the hardest time of their life.
2: I felt bulletproof. I felt like I could get away with anything. And when you're out there, you're surrounded by drugs, you're surrounded by alcohol, you're surrounded by more crime. And me being the person that I was, it led me to getting in trouble.
0: Our guest today is former teen prodigy and Kiwi rugby league player Jada Nikodima, who debuted for the Roosters at the age of 19 before being
1: sacked a year later for off-field indiscretions, including cheating on a drug test. During his banishment to Rugby League Wilderness, he battled depression and suicidal thoughts before being invited to take part in the Redcliffe Dolphins pre-season camp, run by professional development specialist, Glenn Azar. He credits this meeting with changing his entire life.
0: He now plays for the Melbourne Storm in the NRL and works with the Building Better Humans project as a mentor for at-risk teens. This is his incredible story of redemption and how he used fitness to come back from the brink. Kia ora and welcome to Jaden Nicodema. Kia ora. <laughs> <laughs> from one fellow Kiwi to another. <laughs> Thank you so much. Look, we're just going to start right at the beginning. Like, obviously, we've been mates for a little while, so I know a little bit about you. But for everyone else out there who doesn't know who you were and what an outstanding player you were growing up, tell us about growing up, your family life and school life. Like, how did it all begin for you?
2: Yes, yeah, so I was born in uh, Palmerston, North of New Zealand, um, but Dad was in the Army, so we got shifted to Burnham, which is in Christchurch. Um, we played a, a bit of junior footy there. I, I started playing footy when I was five. Me and my brothers are all close too, so Cody was Cody's pretty good back then too. So growing up, um, he got scouted to come to Brisbane. So my mum and dad moved our whole family to Brisbane when I was eight. Cody would have been 10 for an opportunity, um, not just to play footy, but to get dad out of the army too. I think mum was a bit fed up with him in the army um, <laughs> as well. She wanted her husband back. So, yeah, we shifted to Brisbane, played a bit of footy there on the north side. And then, yes, yeah, so sort of one thing led to another. Cody got picked up first with rep teams. And then, obviously, when you start to make a name for yourself, they look at the family name. And um, <laughs> I guess I was fortunate enough to be playing some all right footy at the time too and I got picked up when I was 15 by the Bronx. I was playing in the development sort of side there and um, in year 12 was sort of when I kicked off. I made Queensland reps and then I made Australian schoolboys and then off the back of that a lot of doors just opened for me. I I ended up leaving school into an NRL contract which is sort of unheard of as a 17 year old and then two years after that I was coming off contract and I was sort of in high property, a few clubs wanted me. And that's when I ended up signing with the Roosters where I met you. Um, it was one of the biggest contracts that are, that a teenager had signed at the time. Um, nowadays, you're getting a million dollar contracts from your David for feeders and whatnot. But um, at the time I signed for three years and it was worth 750K. Oh,
1: wow.
2: Which is a lot of money at the time. and
1: Especially for that uh, <laughs> yeah, age as well.
2: Scratching my head thinking, what am I doing? But it was awesome. I got to move to the the big smoke, as they call it, Sydney. Um, I'm a massive mummy's boy, so it was a it was a big move. It was a hard move. Me and my brothers are all close too, so to live away from them, mm. yeah, I, I really went into the big smoke head first, and um, I came out head first too. <laughs>
1: wow, was <laughs> this something that you had always wanted to do? I mean, you had all these opportunities as a result of your upbringing. Was football something that you knew you wanted to turn into your career?
2: Yeah, I guess rugby league was my DNA. So, like, mm. it's all I ever knew. And I guess I love the the attention that came with footy too. So, I knew that I could, if I could stay good at rugby league, then I'd get a bit more attention.
1: Yeah,
0: it's so interesting because I mean that leads me into the next question: was like, you know, obviously you signed for the Roosters at nineteen. You're on this huge contract. What was it like? Like, you were thrust in this environment where there's money thrown at you, there's girls thrown at you, there's temptation thrown at you. You know, there's seemingly not really any consequences for any bad choices. What was that like for you? Like, talk us through sort of what your life was like at the club and, you know, outside of the club as well with the people that you surrounded yourself with.
2: Yeah, to be honest, it's a massive blur. (laughs) And I say that because not just because I was drunk the whole time. (laughs) um, When I was at school... Um, because I was so good at rugby league, everything else came second. My schoolwork came second. Um, and if I didn't do anything the right way, if I like didn't wear the right uniform to school, every other normal kid would be getting suspended, would be getting detentions. They just gave me a slap on the wrist and just moved me on. So all through school, I felt bulletproof. I felt like I could get away with anything. And mm-hmm. um, when you go into the real world, you, you get found out. Everyone's on an equal playing field, and I didn't really understand that. I guess when I went to move to Sydney straight after high school, I got thrown all this money um, at me. I I debuted as a 19-year-old whilst I was still doing the wrong thing. I was still going out clubbing. I was still being disrespectful to, to my family name, I guess, and there were no real consequences that came off the back of it, so... For that two-year period when I lived in Sydney, it was it was a massive blur. Yeah, I just didn't really understand or know the real benefits of like why I was in that system and like the platform that I had. Um, I took it. I took a lot for granted at the time, and right now, like it still bugs me the the person that I was back then. But I wouldn't be the person that I am. I wouldn't have learned exactly. the lessons that I've learned today if it wasn't for the mistakes I've made back then.
1: There's a lot to be said for attention and chasing that attention through those successes that you've had. But the attention can also be a bad thing as well and sort of get you into trouble. How did you manage the temptations of, you know, your high-speed lifestyle?
2: Yeah, not very well. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I guess I I love being the centre of attention. I love being the class clown at school. I I was a kind of kid that sort of looked for ways that people would egg me on to do the, the wrong thing. And when you get out of high school, oh, there's not as much people that, that love you. Yeah, your teachers aren't there to care for you, to try and mm-hmm. guide you the right way. You've sort of got other idiots trying to egg you on to do the wrong thing. And yeah, I guess you, you don't have the school gates to protect you. When you're out there, you're surrounded by drugs, you're surrounded by alcohol, you're surrounded by more crime than, than you see within the school gates. And that's sort of what I was surrounded by. At the time, and me being the person that I was, it led me to getting in trouble.
0: Did you have any like role models or mentors Mm. at that time, like either at the club or outside of it, like with family and friends?
2: I guess the only people that like I really lent on were my dad and my brother, and they were in a completely different state.
0: Mm. Uh,
2: The role models that
3: I did have at the club uh, weren't doing the right thing for me. So,
0: did you find though, like it's quite interesting that you have this environment at home where your dad's like ex-military? you know, Cody, your brother, is doing incredible things as NRL club, yet you found yourself kind of at the opposite end of the spectrum. Was that quite hard to relay to your family?
2: Oh, yeah, 100%. And when I had to tell them that I failed my drug test, it was literally the worst moment of my life. But I guess the thing for me, like, me and Cody have always been compared to each other. My my whole high school, yeah. all the way growing up and. Cody was always the one to do the 1%. He was always the one to stay at home and, yeah, just do the right thing. And if I was going to be different, I had to do things differently to what Cody was doing. So so he was going out to parties and staying at home. I was going to the same parties that he was invited to, but hanging out with his friends. Yep.
0: Yeah,
1: okay.
2: And I guess that's sort of where we created our own paths.
0: And that brings us to, you know, the specific, the Mad Monday incident. And obviously, Mad Monday is absolutely notorious in Australia. I've actually been to a Mad Monday, and I can testify that it is just as crazy. Crazy. Uh. I didn't even know why I was there. It was the most bizarre situation, but I know how crazy it is. I mean, even if I look at the headline that was generated off the back of that, which is like brothels, coke, and cheating on drug tests. Like, if you Google your name, that comes up. How confronting is that for you?
2: Yeah, when that article came out... My fiance was not happy. <laughs> uh, I mean, we, we've, we've discussed everything. Like, I've laid everything on the table, but brothels? Like, <laughs> it was red light district in, in the Netherlands. Like, it's what you do. But
0: So take us through, like, take us through what exactly was that incident? Like, what happened?
2: Yeah, so six months prior to that incident, um, I got my first strike. It was after an Origin game. Um, I went back to Brizzy, had a big night with some maids. I got stuck in doing some drugs. Um, which I completely own up to. And, yeah, you get your first strike now. Off the back of that first strike, only the CEO knows from the club. So it was only him and myself that knew. And I remember having this conversation with him afterwards, and he just goes to me, mate, you're going to have to do a 12-week counselling session with the doctor, a drug and alcohol counselling session. Um, And I said, yes, sweet. He goes, once you do that, um, you've just got a three-year probation, and then your first strike goes, and you're sweet. I was like, yeah, (laughs) righto. Like, I've literally just gotten away with another thing, and I had no consequences. Uh, for yes. my actions, like 12 weeks with a doctor is, is nothing.
0: Yeah,
2: okay. So because there was no consequences for my actions then, six months later when I was in the same predicament, the season was over so I thought I could get away with it. I got stuck in in a, into a big night and my bad Monday went four days long. So I was, <laughs> <laughs> I was definitely bad. on Monday, something. Monday, Tuesday,
1: Wednesday and Thursday. <laughs> yeah.
2: It was, Gosh, it gives me anxiety. It was literally, <laughs> yeah, it makes me sick thinking about it now because I could not go that long. Oh. But, yeah, I got, I got tested. Three days afterwards, um, by the Roosters in house, and yeah, it was my second, my second failed drug test. I knew at the time that it was my second one. I knew at the time that I was a good chance of being done my second chance. So I was, I was tempted not to come to to do the second test, but I just wanted to own up to it. And I mean, mm. because I knew I was taking drugs, I was like, all right, if I'm gonna get done, I'm gonna get done, and. That I did, I ended up getting done my second strike. Um, I got called, a phone call by the CEO again. It was on my 21st birthday <laughs> just before my party and I was like, oh, how am I gonna tell my parents this? And then all these little things started going through my head like, man, I need to lie about this. My my third year contract I think was worth 450K and I was like, man, at, at 21, you can't just throw this away. I, I had just bought a house. <laughs> So that's when um, I was calling around texting some of the Wyong boys to see if they would lie on a stat deck with me to say that they spiked my drink because no one was at um, our little Mad Monday um, at first in Wyong, apart from like 10 of us. So how would anyone else find out? Mm. Um, And as my mum says, like if you lie about things, she won't just find out. Like everyone will find out. The truth will find you. And yeah, it came down on me pretty hard.
0: Were you honest with your family and friends at that particular moment in time? Like, did you tell your family what had really happened or did you sort of stick to that my drink got spiked story to them as well and then it came out later, which made it kind of worse for you? Um, no, I stuck solid.
1: And you did get somebody to sign this stat deck, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. I got, I
2: got someone from um, from Wyong to sign that stat deck and, mm. yeah, it still annoys me to this day that I not just put myself in that position but put someone else yeah. in that yeah. position too to... Potentially go to jail for five years. I think the main um, consequences. So, yeah, it was it was a very lonely time. I knew for so long that I was lying, but I knew that I just needed to. I, all I wanted was was my money. Like, and that's what I Wanted. I didn't really care about the twelve week suspension for footy. Um, I just wanted the money to to pay for my health and um, yeah, just put myself in a good position.
0: Well, wow, and what did your like when you? Finally, told your friends and family. Were they supportive?
2: Yeah, I think for me, like once I told my parents that I was taking drugs, that I'd taken it on numerous accounts. All they wanted to do was help me. Like they raised this kid um, to be respectful, to respect their footy coaches, their teachers, to stay away from drugs, and just to just to do the right thing, to be a good human, and. For so long, they thought I was a um, disrespectful kid until, yeah, I guess they they found out in the, the media that I was everything opposite to that. I was pretty disrespectful. I was taking drugs. I was indulging in alcohol on, on weekends and doing benders. And um, for them, I think all they wanted to do was bring their son back, the son, the Jaden that they knew. And we sat down, we had a big, honest conversation about what had happened. And they moved me back into home. Um, And they just said, this is what's going to happen. You're going to study for a year. Uh, You're going to do your Cert 3 and 4 in fitness. At the time, I wasn't driving. I got done drink driving probably like three months prior to that to dig myself in an even deeper hole. So I think that was like the turning point for them to bring me out. I think they could sense that I was was in a a dark place. Um, I was suicidal at the time, which... They didn't know. Only my little brother knew. Um, but I guess as parents, you can sense these things. And Definitely. Yeah, they helped me out. They yeah got me studying. They paid for my course. And then off the back of that, I got a job out of it, doing PTs and, and group training. And I guess being in a, a high-performing sport for so long, like that's what you love. You love exercise. And it honestly brought my life back. So training saved your life? Fitness actually did save my life.
1: Honestly, that is such an important angle to take from your family in supporting you the way that they did because if I was to look at that for myself, I mean, I wouldn't know how my parents would react to something like that and I would like to think that they would, you know, move me back home and support me like that but at the same time, you just never know and I think the instinct is to instantly get angry at at somebody that you're so close to that has done something at that calibre that it's so wonderful to hear that you did have that support around you. Yeah,
2: I was I was actually kind of surprised. Like my dad's—he's tough. Like we grew up pretty mm. tough. Um, like I said, if we disrespected anyone, let alone like disrespecting our last name, yeah, there'd be big consequences. And when we had our chat, he literally sat us down, and my dad started crying. Yeah. Um, and it brought tears to my eyes. It, it actually hurt more. Then than getting hit and yeah. honestly, it was probably the best thing that could have happened to me, that chat. Yeah. I sort of needed that um, chat to reflect on to be like, all right, you're not just hurting yourself. Like all these things that you're doing are hurting so many people around you. Like you just just, yeah. you're breaking so many hearts and you, need, you either need to pull your head in or they're going to kick you out soon.
0: Do you think that like being in the mental health space now, There seems to be, especially for guys, like a huge stigma or a huge blockage when it comes to sort of talking about their feelings, communicating, you know, reaching out and asking for help. Like, would you say that's pretty accurate? Is that something that you felt?
2: Yeah. I, I never spoke about my emotions. I guess the thing for me to cope with my emotions when I was feeling down was I'd go out with my mates, I'd drink alcohol, I'd take drugs because that's all I knew, that's what made me feel good about myself. When I was around them people, we were laughing, we were doing funny things, like stupid things to laugh at. So yeah, I guess I never really thought about speaking in about my emotions until um, it was It was one random ass night with my little brother and he sat me down and he goes, bro, are you all right? And like nothing happened throughout the day, nothing. He just said, are you all right? And like, I just broke down crying. It makes me, like, warm inside. I'm like, man, because oh. that little, the chat with him, like, after I spoke with him, I'm like, man, like, I, I told him everything that I wanted to, sometimes I just felt like driving my car into a pole and just, like, not being here anymore. And he started breaking down. But as a big brother, you're supposed to be looking out for him and he was looking out for me. And, yeah, I, th- I guess that was, like, the changing moment.
1: Was yeah. that the point where you recognised that you were at your lowest, that you were in trouble, and if so, what were the things that you used to sort of get you back on track or put you into a better position than you were in at that stage?
2: Yeah, that was definitely um, rock bottom for me, and I'm thankful enough. um, It would have been like a week after that we had a, a footy camp, and I hadn't played league for, man, like two and a half years, I think, at the time. And I'd just been invited back to do a preseason. I think I still wasn't allowed, I registered with the QRL. Um, but the Redcliffe took a chance with me. They brought me in to do a, a rugby league army camp. And we went to Newstead where I now work at Project 180 and met Glenn.
0: Glenn Azar?
2: Yeah, we we ran the army camp. I've done plenty of army camps before and usually like they just yell at you. You <laughs> lay your bags up. You're, you're up at three in the morning, you're in the cold water, like so on. like. But this one was different. When we walked in there, um, we were all just chilling in a group. And then he goes, come on, boys, we'll, we'll go sit down here. And we had different people talk to us. But there's two things that sort of stuck with me. He first, he spoke about his son, Christian, who's intellectually impaired. Um, he said at the time he was 17, but he had the brain capacity of a five to six year old. And he didn't have a choice to do that. He was born with that. And he was like to us, if you don't want to be here, you don't have to be here. You choose to be here. If you don't want to be here, just leave now. Cause this is a choice that you're making. And I was like, all right. Like, I didn't want to be there at the time. I had a whole tub of ice cream on the way there. But I was like, you know what? I was gifted with this opportunity to be to be good at Rugby League. Like, don't be an idiot. Like, actually use it. And straight after that, he goes, Everybody wants to be a beast until it's time to do what real beasts do. And For me, like I I wanted to be an NRL player. That was my identity. Like I grew up loving the sport. But I wasn't being a beast. I was out at parties, um, taking drugs, doing stupid things. I was actually I remember at a few parties. I had Cody's footy game on my phone while I was drinking, while I was on drugs, and I was just like, Man, if you wanna do this, like do the right thing. And yeah, I guess from that point, it sort of primed me for the whole camp. And I was like, you know, I'm going to rip into this camp. I'm going to give my 100%, 100%. And it was one of the best I've ever felt like fitness-wise. I was at the front of the group. I'm never at the front. I was always at the back. <laughs> and I was at the front overtaking people. And I'm like, what the hell? Like, this thing works. So straight after that camp, I reached out to Glenn. And I was like, man, like, I've never felt like this probably since I left high school when I went straight into the Bronx system. And I just reached out for help. I laid all my problems out. I said, this is what has happened. This is what I've been through, but uh, I'm ready to change. And um, because he sort of uh, helped Alyssa, Klein Amber, Mount Everest, he's he's worked with high performers. um, And I think he could see in me that I was a high performer. I was just around the wrong crowd. He put Mm. his hand out and lent me some help. And um, he he goes to me, if you come to the gym at five o'clock, I think it was, then we'll have a meeting and I'll help you. And I used to wake up at 10am at the time, so I was like, what the hell? Like 5am, you nuts. But um, I was there at 4.45, I was ready to change. And yeah, I'm so grateful for the camp and for him actually reading the message and asking for help because it's led me to where I am today.
1: So that was officially
2: your turning point. That was literally the turning point.
1: Oh my gosh, I love that. It's such a standout as well. I could not think of a better
0: story to let other young kids in the system hear in order to see what is possible, doesn't matter where you are in life, that at any point you can make the decision to legitimately change your life. Like it doesn't matter where you are or what you're doing, you know, or who you're with, you can at any point in time make the choice to take a different path. Mm. Did you find that when you started getting back on track that a lot of the people that were potentially not on the same path with you, that they kind of just fell away? Or did you actually have to cut people out of your life?
3: I never cut anyone out of my life. Um, It's funny you say that, like when I did make, started to make changes, some of the boys that I used to like bender with um, week in, week out, they actually started making changes too. Um, They gave up the grog, they started running like sort of marathons and um, doing other challenges in their life other than drinking. So um, that was pretty cool to see. But yeah, I guess I never wanted to cut anyone off because I wanted to be a good example for even those that were making the mistake. And um, I guess if they could see me doing that, then hopefully they would jump on the same sort of bandwagon and and change too. And some did, some didn't. Some were pretty jealous of me getting back on track and getting back to where I am now. But that's life and they sort of have to deal with that negative energy themselves. So um, that sort of doesn't phase me.
1: What were some of the accessories that you used from, I guess, your time with Glenn and moving forward to help you become that high performer that you knew you could be. Because he does a lot of
0: mindset stuff, right? Yeah. So, you know, the visualisation, the meditation, the breath work. Do you get into that now?
2: Yep. Yeah, so I do I do sort of on a lower scale the, the meditation. The thing for me, like when I start my day, I always cold shower. Mm. I do it in the mornings before I train and that primes me for my day. Um, I like challenging myself. And Amen. It's the first challenge, like you wake up, you're warm, you get out of bed, um, You jump in the cold shower. When you turn, it, you're like, man, I don't have to do this. Like, no one's watching, but <laughs> once you do it and you get in, you're like, ah, I come out. It's my first win of the day. And then by doing that, I can set myself out for the whole day. And that's sort of the first thing that Glenn taught me. But the biggest thing for me is adventure. Yeah, Putting your phone down, going out into nature and just resetting yourself and, and giving your time to reset. Life is like so fast. And if you just sit, for a moment at the top of a mountain and just reflect, like, you'll actually see the amount of growth that you've you've gone
0: through. I was just about to say, like, are the changes, I mean, 2022 is going to be an absolutely phenomenal year mm. for you. Before Melbourne, though, you did, I know you went for a stint at the Warriors because I dropped you at the airport. You were in quarantine and you were doing workouts in your hotel room and then before I knew it, you came back. What happened with the Warriors? Because that was kind of like your first lifeline. Was that after, was that the first thing you got offered after working with Glenn?
2: Yep, yep. So that was my first sort of pathway to come back into the NRL. Um, it was just on a train and trial contract. And I hadn't been playing any footy at the time. Like all the footy was um, cancelled because of COVID. Mm. But because they seen all the good work that I was doing in the community, all over my social media, they gave me an opportunity to the worries. And super grateful for that too. I stuck right into it. But unfortunately, like six weeks into the preseason. My shoulder gave way and I dislocated it in one of the wrestling sessions. So I had to um, I had to get surgery. And because I was only on a training trial contract and I wasn't like a New Zealand resident, I had to fly back to Australia, do two weeks isolation and then get surgery done and then do everything there. So it sort of put me out of the game for like seven months. I didn't play my first game back last year for the Redcliffe Dolphins until... July, August, I think it was. And then, yeah, off the back of that, I played, I think I got eight games in. And after the second game, um, the Melbourne Storm came knocking at my door. It was, I, I, was, I was still in shock <laughs> to have a team like the Melbourne Storm come knocking at your door and offering twice as much as I'm on now. I was like, far out. Like, yeah, things that is hard. You couldn't wipe the smile off my face.
0: It's interesting because Melbourne Storm are like one of the clubs in the NRL that are just renowned for their work ethic Mm. and for their integrity and for the amount of respect that the players have for for each other and the respect the public has for them. I mean, they haven't had such a great rap as of late, but for the most part, they're known to be that team, right? You know, the Cooper Cronks and their work ethic is just incredible. So it's amazing that a team of that calibre and with those qualities came to you off the back of the community work that you've been doing.
2: It still shocks me, yeah. so I had two teams. I had the Storm and the Broncos and they're sort of on different ends of the ladder. For me the easy option was to take Brisbane. I had more I've got more opportunity to play Games in the NRL for the Broncos. Mm. My family's all from Brisbane. I got a baby on the way, so life would be easy. But I, I in our personal development camps, like I tell these kids, if you want to be the best, you better hang out with the best, and don't just look at the top fifty percent of the sport or the course or whatever uh, the job that you're in. Look at the top 10% and, and study mm. what they're doing because that'll put you in a better position to be a high performer. And for me, the best players in my position, they come from the Melbourne Storm. They've got the best system. They've turned sort of nobodies into absolute guns. Every player that comes out of the Storm always seems to go into a bigger contract elsewhere. And I was like, all right, although like this is going to be tough, I want to challenge myself and I want to be able to, in five years' time tell these kids that I train with the Melbourne Storm, I train with the best of the best. I guess it sort of adds value to my story now when I do go out and public speak to, to young kids because they'll tend to listen a bit more. They'll, they'll probably listen just as much as they listen to Cody speak because whenever we go to talk, <laughs> it's always eyes on Cody but no eyes <laughs> on me.
0: <laughs> so talk me through... A day in the life of a professional NRL player in terms of training. Like, do you do the same things every day? Do you have specific recovery sessions? Is it strength and field in the same day? Do you do Pilates? All of that sort of stuff.
3: Yeah, so it it changes depending on um, sort of what month or what um, training season we're in. Um, So between October and February, you're in like a pre-season. So... That's that's pretty full and you've got some long days. Mm. Um, you usually train five out of the seven days and your days can go from eight hours to 14 hours depending wow. on sort of what training program you're on or what day it is. You've got to fit in your gym sessions, your video sessions, your skill sessions. And then um, on different days, you've got... Uh, wrestling sessions which is a, a massive part of our game and then you've got to do your own recovery sessions which um, we sort of tend to do on our days off so I would probably say six out of the seven days we're in at the club training or doing something so um, that's definitely the longest part but now um, from March until October you're in you're in season and um, you may be in maybe four or five days a week yeah. depending on when your game is Mm. But the days are a lot shorter. I think our longest day that we have is maybe like an eight-hour day, which is only once a week, and then the rest you're in there for maybe between three hours and five hours. Um, this is probably the best part. Like, this is why we play footy is um, it's a lot more enjoyable. We get to put all what we've done in pre-season into practice in our, in our footy games, and I'm excited now to play some footy and to see how far I improve this year.
0: Are there any like specific lifting standards in the NRL? Like I look at our gym and it's kind of like, you know, we look at a deadlift and we go, you want to be able to double body weight Mm. lift in terms of your deadlift. You want to be able to do a specific number of pull-ups. You want your bench to hit a certain number. Is there any of those sorts of things in there?
3: There's definitely a lot of science behind the lifting nowadays in rugby league. I know like Ten twenty 20 years ago, they just used to do the basic deadlift squats, bench press, but now um, there's a lot of uh, footy-specific movements that we do, so it's not as yeah. um, quite like how much you can lift, but it's more like how much you can push mm. in different directions um, to simulate like passing or how much you can push upwards from like a three-quarter squat to simulate like dipping and tackling. So, yeah, there's a lot of different theories. I know I've been at three different clubs and there's been like three different like gym sessions different training techniques that um, the, the coaches go through. So, yeah, I'm at the Storm now, um, and that's another different sort of training program that I've been going through. But I, I will say I'm, I'm thoroughly enjoying this one.
0: Yeah, cool, because I was going to say you have been at four clubs, right? Yeah. You did the Roosters, then you went to Warriors, then you had the Redcliffe Dolphins, and now you're at the Storm. Is the training really different between clubs and the coaching um, style?
3: Yes, yeah, they are pretty different, actually. Some are more, like, structured. Others have been, like, the one I'm at now, they're a lot more flexible. It depends on, like, who, who your, your key players are when your spine, your 1679, and then I think the coaches just adapt to that. Um, I was talking to a few coaches um, that are here at the Storm, and they said when Cooper Crump was here, they're a bit more structured. But when um, now they've got Cameron Munster and Jerome Hughes, who like to play a bit more eyes up footy, they become a bit more flexible with their, their gameplay. So I guess the best best coaches just adapt to sort of what players they have that they're working with. And I'm enjoying this sort of coaching as well, because they, they let you do what you want to do too. And they sort of play to your strengths, which is um, always good.
0: Now, I always harp on about, you know, mobility. And I always have people in the gym, like, when I'm doing mobility training or I'm doing a little bit of trigger pointing, and they're like, oh, my God, I should be doing that, but I have no time. And I'm like, oh, well, that's cool that you can't make time for this, but can you make time to be injured? Do you do mobility training? Yes. Like, and do you rate it now? <laughs> like, do you rate it more now that you've been injured?
3: I rate it so much more now than, <laughs> than anything, especially after being injured. Like, I guess when you do have injuries, you sort of – you look back and you think, man, did I take shortcuts here? Did I take exactly. shortcuts there? And I can honestly say, like, I never stretched when I was younger. And I guess maybe that's the reason why I did my shoulders or um I've done my hammy, what, six times, I oh. think. Four on one leg, two on the other. And I can guarantee you right now that like, I didn't stretch my hips and my lower back. And I remember... The day before I did one of my hammies, I was like, oh, your back's a bit tight. Go stretch it. And I know I didn't do that. So I know before every session now, I, I like to give myself between 30 minutes to an hour to stretch for field and then between 20 and 30 minutes, even before a gym session too, like it might not seem much, but heaps of injuries come from um, mm. being in the gym.
0: And <laughs> <laughs> okay, say fitness is good for you. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> Who knew, hey? Who knew? <laughs> Just for my own ego. My sessions are much harder than anything you've ever encountered at any of your clubs, right?
3: 100%. Oh, my God. I died. I remember sitting (laughs) in that car dead.
1: Yes. Oh, my life is complete, (laughs) Jaden.
3: No, I don't think you understand. You nearly killed me.
1: (laughs) I mean, you can hear it in your voice with how happy you are to be in the position that you are at the moment. So, like, hands down to you for the achievements and you've been able to pull yourself back onto this pathway Um, And do these incredible things for yourself and your family as well. So outside of football, you're involved with the Building Better Humans Project. Can you talk to us about this?
2: Yeah, the Building Better Humans Project. That's pretty much what Glenn started. Glenn's got his own podcast, the Building Better Humans Project. And yeah, he he pretty much just every, I think it's like three times a week, gives us like life lessons of what he's learned or um, like seven minute clips of um, how we can be better about our day and so forth. And I guess when I was working there, uh, we always spoke about running personal development camps for young kids. So we started our own podcast called Bro Chat when there was four of us. And I remember Glenn saying that it's easier to fix young kids than broken adults. And yeah, so off the back of what happened and how much I changed from our footy camp, we were like, why can't we implement this and run our own like personal development camps? Do the mindset sessions at the start, prime the kids, put some physical activity there, but not much, and then take their phones away. Mm. Go out into adventure, uh, into nature, and just experience life what it is. Um, Climb a mountain. Most of these kids think that this mountain is Mount Everest. Like no one's ever <laughs> climbed a mountain before. No one really camps at the top. We've got all the camping gear as well to give to the kids and we've got some pretty cool people to help out too. I know we've had Cody, we've had Vans, who's like a rugby sevens player. She does a girls one. We've had Tania Latupo. Like, we've got the people to do it. And then we've got Glenn to prime our kids and um, enforce all these mindset talks as well. So it all just fed off the back of, The opportunity that uh, myself and Glenn had together when he took our footy camp and then, yeah, everything else just evolved from there.
1: You're an incredible mentor now. I mean, for somebody who's been through so much life experience at such a young age, you are somebody who these young people would trust and look up to and essentially change the direction of their life based on your experiences and your support that you're giving them.
0: Off the back of that, like, do you find it easier now to ask for help? Like, Mm. if you are experiencing a really bad day or you're struggling through a mental health challenge, like, do you actually ask for help?
2: Yeah, 100%. I've got, like, the best support group around me and best community around me. Like, I feel like I can ask anyone at my gym. Um, I can sit them down and have a chat and talk to them. And I guess when you do start... Conversating with other people, you realize that your problems are actually so small compared to um what you really think it is, so
1: I read somewhere that you actually do this daily. You reach out to people every day and ask them, "Are you okay?" and just check in with people. It's a daily check in is that Have I got that correct?
2: Yeah, it's something that I enjoy i like I love serving people, I love helping people. Then as little as like a little message like, "Hey brother, like, how are you? How's your day like they could be having a bad day and that could just be the turning moment for them to be like, oh, I'm actually like not doing well. Can we go for a coffee or yeah, can we, can we have a chat? And I've definitely had times where mates have been like, man, like, thank you so much for this message. It means a lot. We haven't even spoken in like 80s, but for you to reach out um, and sense that I wasn't going like doing all right, like it means a lot. And for me, like that's the kind of person that I want to be known for. Yeah, when I get when I grow old.
0: Good on you. I love that. I talk about that so much. Like every talk I do, the last thing I always end with is like, people are so unaware of how much power they have. Like in every single moment and every single day to change the trajectory of someone's life, and that could be like giving them a random compliment, giving them a hug, reaching out via text message. Like we underestimate the impact that we can have on someone's day, on someone's life. You know, we could potentially even save someone's life by one of those messages. So. I absolutely love that you do that. Like, that's unbelievable.
1: Look, is there any advice that you would give to young people out there who are potentially going through a rough time or making some bad decisions as to how they get their life back on track?
2: Yeah, 100%. I think the first thing for me is don't be a victim. For so long, I let myself be the mm-hmm. victim of um, taking drugs and alcohol. And if I just owned my mistakes and, yeah, didn't let myself be a victim... I could have gotten over my issues. I could have grown from my issues, but I let it drag me down for so long. Um, And I guess the last one is if you do make a mistake and you are going to make plenty of mistakes, don't let your mistakes define who you are. Mm. I guess for me, I was painted in the media to be this party boy and I sort of let all my mistakes define who I was at the time. And it showed in my social media accounts uh, when I was putting snaps off of me partying, but that wasn't who I was. The person who I am is who I am today. It's serving people. um, It's staying physically active and it's doing what I love best and that's playing footy and being a family man. So
1: Sometimes you just have to lose yourself to find yourself and I think you've done just that.
2: Yeah, 100%.
1: So you have just welcomed your first son,
0: Marley. If he turns to you in like 10 years or so and says, Dad, I want to be a professional footy player, what are you going to say to him?
3: Absolutely not. Nah, <laughs> jokes. <laughs> I'll say go ask your mum. She's the boss.
0: <laughs> Good answer. You are an incredible role model, Jaden. Like, I can't thank you enough for coming here today. I just want all young boys, especially, like, to listen to this and understand mm. that it is so okay to reach out and ask for help and that they should be checking in on their mates every day and that... You can change your life and you aren't. Like you said, you aren't defined by your mistakes.
1: And there's support out there. People want to help you. I think it's such an important message. You're incredible. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please continue doing what you're doing because you're helping so many people. So thank you. No, we'll do it. Thank you so much.
0: How Fitness Saved My Life is hosted by me, Action Alexa. And me, Jenna Louise. Producer, Tina Madlov, Audio production by Nikki Sitch. And executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. Listener.